Welcome back to Constantino Monologue. In this episode, we're going to be discussing Tower Swallows Chapter 5. Uh, so this chapter can kind of be divided into two. The, uh, the prefix stuff um, and the social commentary going on there, and then Geralt and Cahir's character development at the back half. It's a very good, very solid chapter. As far as the big plot movement and stuff, it, it sort of laying the groundwork for some stuff. Introduces us to a new character, Anquilim. Uh, a very good chapter in terms of character growth, especially for Geralt. Uh, a little bit of care that will come back again in the following chapters and be reiterated upon and grown a little bit more. As well as it has some interesting things to say about law and the way the law is both uh, a protection and a cudgel depending on who uses it. It's one of those chapters where it's not a, it's not one of the big ones. It's not one of the ones where everything changes or one of the more bleak ones, like last one. Um, and it's not one of the, the palate cleanser funny ones like, um, you know, uh, a couple of chapters ago where we needed that break from the darkness before, you know, going into pure misery. And so for here, you know, it does have a funny moment in particular, but it's dealing with quite dark subject matter in the first half. And it's one of those chapters where it's like, it's not the big one, but it's one you remember um, for one reason or another. Uh, so the first half is with uh, them stopping the, you know, Geralt and Co. You know, after they dealt with the beekeepers and escorted them, they stopped by. Geralt initially is resistant to this, but Regis is like, hey, we need supplies, we need the rest up. The, we are not on a time limit to get to the druids right now. I know that's what you're thinking because you're panicked dad, but that's not really... We're not on this massive time limit right now. We we need to be at our, you know, our best. And that means resting up supplies, etc. And of course, stopping by there, Geralt uh, gets taken in by the, the sort of these guards, this Nightwatch people who are Nilfgaardian. Um, and we see the sort of the effects of the conquered areas um, of the north and heading into, like, you know, the, the beginnings of true Nilfgaardian territory, um, that Nilfgaard, as we know, are, are giving incentives to settle these areas. Um, free land, free uh, animals, etc. There, there, there's various incentives to get more settlers. And as a result, there's been kerfuffles between the locals and the Nilfgaardian settlers. Some of them, you know, don't really give a shit about the war or the, 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 the political stuff going on. They're just here for a home, but, you know, it's the natural course of things changing in colonialism. It's just uh, you got two people who are, you know, two different factions sort of fine over the control of this land and um you know there's some in there who violently hate the others there's some who get along and there's some who just don't care and um we see because of the tensions the prefect has kind of introduced basically martial law in all sorts of ways basically as far as he's concerned uh the law is a cudgel and the cudgel is to be brought down on any any offense, no matter how minor, to ensure you know loyalty, to ensure 
no problems exist at all. Of course, that is what we call a culture of fear, and a culture of fear, ironically, despite its purpose being to create a land in which there is no problems, all it does is it creates the problems to be more intense. So you no longer have, like, the minor crimes, but the crimes are always bigger. A culture of fear breeds contempt, and contempt breeds, well, problems. Uh, hence the hence the title of one of these books, Time of Contempt. Um, these are, This is the time of disdain, the time of misery, and people like the prefect, they hide behind the law. They say that the law must be held up no matter what. The ends justify the means. And so I'm allowed to br brutalize whoever. I'm allowed to publicly do some horrid stuff all in the name of the law. But conveniently, the law can be surpassed if he gets him an edge. For instance, you know, he could arrest Geralt or he could, you know, deal with Anglame. But instead, he's going to let them go, um, you know, in, in return for the favor they're going to do him, which is track down Nightingale in his gang. This is, you know, classic. People who enforce the law often feel like they are above the law because they are the ones who decide when it should be enforced. And naturally, that means it shouldn't be enforced on them because, you know, they are the enforcer and they choose not to. It is uh, a commentary on the way in which we, as a society, are inherently flawed and the way in which we do not check and balance are enforcements of law uh, correctly. There have been tons of discussions in recent years, uh, and even before then, uh, especially in America, of over-militarization of the police, um, you know, infringing on people's rights with the Patriot Act. Uh, you know, there's this, there's this sense that how far is too far to enforce the law? And is there such a thing as being able to enforce the law if you're actively breaking your own laws to enforce that law. Um, and, and it's it's a moral quandary. Um, laws are difficult. Uh, laws are in place as much of a t deterrent as they are as a protection. The thing about society um, is that society is effectively a group of individuals who have tried to work together and because of their different individual unique you know traits sometimes they don't agree which means that society you know has inherent weaknesses but it's required for the progression of uh you know science technology you know morality philosophy etc and so it's a good thing inherently the problem is that when you throw someone in a society, they have their own wants, needs, and desires. And then the law says that these are the wants, needs, and desires you have. And sometimes those don't align. So the rule of law, effectively, is designed to be, don't do this. So that, let's take an example. Don't steal, okay? If someone is down on the luck... You know, the, the old Aladdin question I pull all the time on people when they talk about thievery. I'm like, got, got to eat to live, got to steal to eat. If you are in a situation where you are starving, was it wrong to steal? That is a question. 
a question I, an idiot, am not anywhere close to being able to come up with a concrete answer for you, but it is a moral quandary that philosophers have debated for centuries and will continue to debate because what is right and what is wrong in that situation. So a rule of law is essentially to deter you from doing that. Because if you live in a society in which there is no law, then the someone will choose ultimately, no matter how good and just that person is, to do whatever they need. And sometimes what they need isn't very nice. Gotta eat to live, gotta steal to eat. So it's there to deter the people and say don't do this so that we can maintain sort of a baseline of human interaction. Within that quagmire, you have people who are feel that they are the judiciary, that they are the ones in which the law is uh, is answerable to, that they are the, the people who dole it out. And within that, you get people who, like this prefect, or like certain uh, interactions with uh, certain, uh, certain sections of, uh, you know, police, especially in America, as well as in other places, that they are the absolute end-all be-all. They are, they are the law, and the law says this. And so it creates a culture of fear, a culture of distrust. You do not trust the lawmen, so what means, the, you know, what does the law mean to you? You now have to choose, and then that ends up leading into more, you know, it's a slippery slope where, you know, each action will get more and more dire, as you figure out where that line is for you individually, you know, some people will stomp early, some will go all the way, some will be in the middle, but inevitably the cultural sphere breeds nothing but contempt. Because in that world, what does the law mean except for one person's interpretation of it, which is harsh and breaks its own law in order to enforce the law? Which is why Geralt says, talking to the prefect, like, the world you describe seems perfect to me as far as a witcher, because the world you describe is a world full of evil. A world in which, in order to you know, strike out all evil and bring nothing but good, you have brought more evil in new various different ways. Um, you have created a culture in which everybody is scared, angry, frightened, and will do anything they can to survive. And when you back an animal into a cage, they will strike back. It is to survive. And nothing more. It's the basic instinct. You have created a monster. Congratulations. You have created evil. And so that is the talking point of this first half of the chapter is simply about where do you fall in that that category and how far does too far and i think that's a very interesting thing that like these books are being written in the 90s that you know this is a man who grew up during the soviet occupation of poland you know uh you know this obviously was published after the fall so but it was still he experienced that kind of thing and during the first bits of his short stories i've pointed this out was during the martial law in poland in the 80s and so like there is just this sense of he's talking about you know, if you cage people up and say, this is the law and you will follow it, that's not going to solve any problems. As a matter of fact, it creates more problems. On the surface level, it seems like it would work. But, you know, once you prick that surface, you realize that, you know, inevitably, it will just cause more backlash. Every action, you know, results in an equal or an opposite reaction. That is the law of the universe. 
And I think that's interesting because I can apply it to the modern day. This is 2022. You know, we've had various discussions over the past decade, but especially two years ago about police brutality in America, which is where I live, as well as in the UK where I uh, lived previously. Um, This is a continuing debate. What is the right of uh of the law how far can the law stretch where does the law end and you know where does revenge and injustice begin to quote the babylon 5 episode that talks about this as well and it's it's a mortal quagmire and much like Geralt, i agree that this is no way to live this is a society in which it's it's basically fooling itself into believing it's a society that it is civilized that is lawful in reality it is just a society built on one thing and one thing only fear and inevitably someone will strike back against that fear the old saying is sometimes you need to you know uh relinquish the stick and hand out a carrot you know, uh, punishments will only get you so far. And so within this moral quagmire of debates about police brutality and, uh, and you know, the, the links uh, of law and anarchy and all that jazz, we have Geralt and Co. meeting their new member of the Hansa, Anglume. Uh, she is... Uh, a member of a street urchin gang worked for Nightingale, who is potentially, you know, working for uh, something nefarious. We know that a half-elf, you know, um, murdered Codringer and Fen, and that they were paid off by half-elves to do a particular thing to hunt down Geralt. And at first, they're debating who could have been the uh, person that let them know that they were on their way. Who is this half-elf and thus Nightingale working for? The obvious answer is Vilgefortz. And it's a it's it's the answer that they think of initially. Geralt says, you know, prob- probably a sorcerer. Um, Dandelion thinks he may be Dijkstra, but he just points out that that's ridiculous. Um, and uh, then the sad thing comes in. We find out that... Um, Basically, they have been observed magically. Uh, that uh, because of the time frames and the way to describe them, they found four people. Uh, they were uh, they were observed as being the Witcher, Dandelion, and uh, you know a girl with a plaque cut off, so Milva, and then a man who was unknown and who seemed to not interact much. That can either mean Regis or Kahir, which then leads to the confrontation with Kahir. We will find out more about Kahir's uh, motivation and what he's been doing, uh, you know, in here soon. But for now, Geralt is throwing a little tantrum, basically. He is uh, concerned that there was someone who was a traitor, who was giving this information. Conveniently, there was four, not five, listed. Um, and so he confronts Kahir, and Kahir says, that's a load of bullcrap. You just suspect me because you don't trust me because I'm quote-unquote Nilfgaardian, even though I keep telling you I'm not Nilfgaardian. Not only that, but he proved himself on the Battle of the Bridge, so hey, it should be noted that I'm not, I'm, I'm not the person you think I am. 
And when Galt has, you know, just had enough, they end up getting into a tussle. And it's ridiculous, and it's very macho of them. Here is a young man who's uh, had his faith in the institution that he is a part of shaken. And we will find out more about why and what, what he's here for. Has continuously been thrown aside, had to take up arms against his own people, and uh, has been trying to firmly ingrain himself into the Hansa. And Gaunt is being overprotective father. Any kind of uh, male presence around uh, my girl that isn't me, her, her father, you know, must be a threat inherently. It's the it's a very overprotective father mentality, very particular of uh, of certain times. I, I know in America we've we're trying to move away from that, but it's still a stereotype that sticks around, and it was especially prevalent in the seventies and eighties. You know, uh, I I've heard the line once of a, a girl bringing their boyfriend to meet the parents, and the the father saying, "I got my shotgun." You know, it's it's very much of an overprotective father, which of course Geralt would be. Uh, the 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 way in which he grew up, the way he feels for Siri, of course he's overprotective. And then uh, doesn't mean it's healthy, but you know, I never said Geralt is healthy. Matter of fact, I point out many times that he is quite mentally unwell. Um, and so then he confronts Kahir, and it is a tussle. It is complete macho bravado, just punching and kicking and rolling in the dirt and mud. No sense or rhyme or reason, no hashing out their differences. Nothing that can't be fixed with a punch. Might makes right. It's so stupid. And that's why Milva removes her belt and then swats them like she's, you know, spanking children who have been disobedient. Because good on her. She was the only one who's detached enough to go, what the fuck is this? They are two children lashing out. They are two overly indulged macho testosterone on high men who aren't thinking clearly, who are letting that, that stupid part of their brain, that primitive part of their brain take over. And so what I love about this is that this is when Geralt really like he had the big confrontation and he kind of grew up a little in the last book but now he's really grown up uh if you notice you know he takes charge he's I mean, like we can't just be the bumbling group of fools we are right now we need to take charge we need to split up i've made this deal with the prefect to get anglame who by the way looks like siri so of course he's on protective mode um you know which is why he acts all super macho against kahir and it's just classic um, and he has to sort of take charge and go, okay, you, you, and you, you're going here, you, you, and you, me, we're going here, blah, 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 and he finally goes, I am no longer just part of this group, I am the leader, this is the company, this is the Hansa, it needs a leader, boom. And then when Kahir and him have the big squabble and Milva breaks it up, just before everybody parts ways to go their individual ways, uh, you know, Milva reaches Dandelion heading towards, uh, you know, the certain pass area, and, you know, the head to saw as well as near uh, where the druids are, and, and then, uh, you know, Anglame and Kahir and Geralt go in to confront Nightingale because of the hopes of getting information, as well as the deal with the prefect. You know, he apologizes. He actually acts mature for once. Geralt's being mature. 
uh, would you expect this from the man who was in Shard of Ice? <laughs> I mean, look how far he's come, how far he's grown. Um, he's able to delineate his feelings without hiding behind a mask, hiding behind that comfort blanket of being the Witcher, and not punching away his problems. The man is acting actually acting like an adult for once. Yay, our, our stubborn-ass fool of a hero finally, finally admits he was stupid and he apologizes. And he finally admits that they aren't just a group. They are a group of friends. A Hansa. You know, that's the name in Elf Guardian. It's a company, a band of people bonded by friendship. And so for once, finally, Geralt is acting mature. But of course, that comes with a caveat. You ever notice that when Geralt goes through the most change, it's when he when he's backed into a corner... Like an animal, he has to strike back, and it's when he has nothing left. So, you know, big changes for him, uh, especially, or, you know, uh, something more, when he thought that both Yin and Siri were dead. That was the big change for him. Then in, you know, last book, when he thought that basically everything had went up in the flames, and he reunited, and he was being confronted with the ridiculousness, that is him and his profession, which that has come back again, where he's being basically hired out as a hired killer, which is not what a witcher does, and the prefect sort of massive behind her killing a monster. But is he really? Um, and, and that will come back later. But, like, now he thinks Yin has betrayed him. He believes, because of the way the magic works, is that you build up a psychic link between people you spend a long time with. Um, and so, naturally, the only sorceress to spend that amount of time with him and being able to track him that easily and that quickly and that efficiently, uh, you know, to the letter of where he was, would naturally be Yennefer. Additionally, because Regis is a vampire, they don't show up on magical, you know, uh, uh, tracing, which means that, that that would explain the four, which means that the person that was described as the man who didn't say a lot and, uh, and kept to himself would be Kahir. Which means Kahir is not the traitor, which means in his eyes, you know, in Geralt's eyes, Yen must be the traitor. And because of all the bad omens he's been seeing, as well as his disturbing dreams, he firmly believes Ciri is dead. He has lost everything. He believes the woman he loves, the one person he ever truly loved in this world, has betrayed him for one reason or another. And he believes that his daughter, for all intents and purposes, the girl who changed his life is dead. Now, all he's got is revenge. And so he's going to go out. He's all business right now. And he it's sort of avoidance. When something big happens in your life and you have mental issues such as depression, the first time it dawns on you, you become focused. You hyperfixate. You're, you're trying to solve it, it because it's easier than, than processing the emotions. And then as time passes, the emotions will up and explode. Um, and so right now, Geralt is all business. But 
that's not going to last long because eventually he's going to have to process this. Of course, we, the reader, don't know what's going on with Yen just yet, but we know that she escaped the lodge and she would rather go to hell than give Ilgafort any information. So we don't know what's going on there. I know, obviously, because I've read that, but we'll get to that later. And I see, you know, no real point in putting it in the spoiler section because Siri paints it out to us because we, the reader, know that Siri is still alive through the framing device of Visigoda. And we end this chapter with Siri having not seen a vision of Geralt since Thanid seeing Geralt basically and we, we get the strong sense of emotion from her that she saw this she saw him condemn everything that she is dead that Yen has betrayed him and now he's just out to revenge and just on a blood path basically and so Siri goes you know that's that's horrible. First of all, the, the timelines don't line up, which we'll get to later, but also, how could he say such things of Yen? Uh, he knows Yen better than that. And I think that's part of it, is that Geralt's in denial right now. He doesn't know how to process what's going on, and as I said, he's focusing. Hyperfixating, he wants to solve the solution now, 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 without really processing the emotions of what he has, and what has happened. And that will come later. Siri is fine right now, you know, disfigured, obviously, in the hands of Visigoda. That's still a mystery of how she got there, what's going on there. We'll find out in time. Jens and Skellige uh, supposedly disappeared, as Triss found out a couple chapters ago, and all that jazz, so who knows? But it's very clear that what Geralt thinks is true is not reality, at least not in the way he thinks it is. Um, and he's going to have to come to terms with that in a bit. So a very impactful chapter, very good for Geralt as a character, growing him, uh, changing him, getting him on a new path, uh, but yet still the same path, ironically enough, but also diluting his profession, which will come back into play later, um, giving us some moral English and some interesting social commentary and moral quandaries to ponder over that Geralt himself is pondering over. Very strong chapter on not as bleak as last chapter, um, but, you know, still important to the overall narrative as well as, you know, just interesting. Like, it, it's, like I said at the beginning, it's one of those chapters that isn't, like, one of the big ones, nor is it the really funny one, nor is it the really bleak one. It is just one of the chapters in this book that actually you do remember because it's a nice change of the pace from bleakness or big important things happening so i'll see you next time till then bye